Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. Last time on Libre Lounge, we talked about the work that you and I are doing to stop spam on the Fediverse this summer, which is 2019. And we've also been working on something else, a really exciting project that we're happy to announce today, which is uh, Data Shards and the Shardiverse. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah. So a little bit of history. As some people know, I'm working on something called Sprightly. We've talked about that before on a previous episode, but what that's relevant to that is that this was kind of perceived as a necessary component to bring that vision to life. Um, and last year, I submitted a kind of a wish I were here paper to Rebooting Web of Trust. And a full year later, we have some implementations uh, and we are actually heading to Rebooting Web of Trust to try to um, kind of put, push uh, data shards out there. Yeah, we're really excited about Rebooting Web of Trust. That's a it's a place it's a conference where we can take these ideas, bounce them off some really smart people, potentially get them in front of a standards body, converge with other groups doing similar work, and really push this project forward. That's right. And a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is like these are not new ideas. In some ways, the ideas have been pretty well tested in time. Uh, most. Most especially, Data Shards is inspired by two projects, uh, Tahoe LAFS and Freenet. There's some differences between how Data Shards works, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. So let's start with a definition of what exactly Data Shards is. And Data Shards is a project that you started, Chris, and that I've now implemented in Python. And I guess we're calling it a cooperative privacy communication system. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Um, so you can, uh, the, the main idea is that, uh, we want to be able to store stuff in a way that it, it survives a long time, that, uh, it's able to be distributed in a very decentralized manner, but we can continue to refer to it even if various nodes go down. Um, and we're pretty familiar with nodes going down, uh, if you are active on the federated social web, aka the Fediverse, um, where complaints about nodes going down is really probably one of the largest complaints. Um, the, you know, if somebody, you know, let's say Alice is on, uh, some really interesting, you know, well, let's just call it really interesting dot social or whatever, you know, she's on this social network node and eventually the administrator decides, uh, I don't care about this enough anymore. And they just, you know, shut it down right now. Alice loses access to all of her posts and she loses access to even her identity. Um, so we'd like to be able to uh, get away from that kind of problem. And I think we're also familiar with uh, even even not just decentralized systems, even centralized systems go down sometimes, right? Yeah, famous example of that is GeoCities, which was a huge website in the 90s. And it's just totally gone now. And uh, we'll probably link to this in the show notes. There's a great talk by Jason Scott about the the dangers of big websites going down and how that can impact uh, internet culture. So that's a huge issue where you're talking about a tiny website or a big website, but it's more, but in activity pub, we are encouraging lots of smaller instances by design. We want lots of little small sites around. 
And that's great. And it's important that we have a diversity of communities that are all in the Fediverse. The downside of that is that little sites are more likely to go down because maybe they don't have enough resources. Maybe the person or the people running it go away. Maybe they don't have the best network connectivity or whatever. So that problem gets amplified for a small site. And this only shows how important it is that we have a system that allows content to persist, which I know you're going to talk about. Yeah. And I think you tied in that idea that servers might not have the resources. A great source of irony is that people who make content and artists and et cetera, if they self-host, they tend to be punished for making good content, right? We charge them for the bandwidth for having done this nice service to their community. And that's not great. Yep. And in the 90s, we called that the slash dot effect, which is basically, hey, you might have a website that's a little tiny website, but gets super popular because it was mentioned uh, at the time on a website called Slashdot, but maybe today we would say, you know, it, it was on Reddit or, or something else, uh, or it was really popular and it got viral on social media. And because of that, it gets hit so much that the expenses for hosting it become astronomical, or maybe the, the, the whole site just goes down. And that's a problem. We actually want popular things to stay up. So we need a way that popular content doesn't get punished. We need a way to keep data from going uh, from disappearing off the internet just because uh, either temporarily or permanently the, the owner can't maintain it. And data shards can do both of those things. And it can do other uh, powerful things like keep our data private as well. So let's, let's go back to that example of the Fediverse and talk about how that actually works. So right now, if I make a post, that post lives on my server and maybe your, maybe your server keeps a copy of it. But if you, Chris, sent a link to that post, uh, that I made to a third party, they're going to go and they're going to try to retrieve it from my server. Mm -hmm. And if my server is down for whatever reason, it's not going to be available to retrieve. So one way that we could, we could handle this naively is we could just say, well, when you make, you know, they could go to you for that, for that content. They could, you could, what we call cache that content for them. Of course, the problem with that is that then we need some kind of unique identifier that says that, okay, this is the content. And that's not that hard. We could use the URL for the unique identifier, but then we would need some way of verifying that the URL really matched the data. So instead of just using the URL, we use the fingerprint of the data. Uh, and that fingerprint is a hash. That way we know that the content is what you, is what it says it is. Um, and the way that works for people who aren't maybe as technical is a little bit complicated, but it basically, we know that if the hash matches, uh, if that string is kind of like a fingerprint of data. So if that fingerprint matches, we know that it's, it's good. Right. And you could, you could have sent me a link to like HTTP colon slash slash, you know, emaxon.net slash coolcatpick.jpg. But if you instead give me this kind of gobbledygooky letters and numbers, uh, fingerprint, uh, or hash, it doesn't matter if I get it from you or from somebody else. As long as I verify that it ha it matches that hash, it, anybody can host it. That's right. And so we are cooperatively hosting this content. And, and I think that's a huge change from the way we think about things now. 
it doesn't really matter where you got the information as long as you know that it is the information you're looking for. That's right. Uh, then we can all work together to make sure that that it's available to everyone. So so data shards is not the only technology to do this. So one well-known example is IPFS um and it's you know also called the interplanetary file system and so they do something like this. Um you know you can upload that picture of a cat um and uh now if I have that name I can retrieve it except the problem is that Anybody on the network, we've got all these people helping share stuff on the network. Anybody who's helping share that content um, is able to see the content, right? And maybe I just wanted to send that cat or you wanted to send that pet cat picture only to me. Um, and there's no real way to do that in the core of IPFS. Right. So one of the things that makes uh, data shards interesting is that and different from maybe how we normally think of putting data on the internet is that things that you put in data shards are immutable. What that means is that they can't change. And don't worry, we have a, a mutable layer later, but immutable means that the data that you get is the data that you get. The file that's there is always that file. And that's actually an important feature because it, it it also means that no one can tamper with it, right? They can't they can't say, oh, this was the document, but somebody has modified it or changed it. The document that you get is always the document that you're looking for, and and otherwise the hash that fingerprint would change. So that's a kind of the immutable component of this. And then Chris has built a system on top for mutable, which just means a system to allow you to then modify content. But but we kind of think of them as two separate things. Um, so we think of them as the IDSC, which is the immutable, and the MDSC, which is the mutable. So yeah, so the, the core operation is these immutable data shards, the IDSCs. Um, and how do we bring in mutability, the ability to update things? Well, what we do is we just make new versions of it that point at different immutable versions. So if you've used Git, you're already familiar with this. If you haven't used Git, you can just think of like, if you've saved multiple copies of a document on your computer, like, you know, my document dot one, my document dot two, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you maybe have like the latest version. The latest one is just pointing at whatever, whatever these past versions are. So data shards didn't just fall from the sky or, you know, come out of a, a an inspired a fever dream that Chris had. This is built on a lot of well-understood, well-established technologies and previous systems that are kind of similar. And the, the name of these systems are content address systems or content address networks sometimes is what they're called. And uh, the, the big ones that people might have heard of are IPFS, Freenet, and Tahoe LEFS. That's right. So... IPFS might be the most useful one to think about kind of as a contrast. Um, so in that previous example you gave, you said, you know, maybe you made a picture of a cat and you wanted to share it with me and I wanted to share it with someone else. Um, well, that's fine for us three to see that picture of a cat, but maybe it's like your pet cat and you really just don't see, want the world to see your pet cat. Like it's kind of a private moment for you. And uh, um, IPFS doesn't out of the box, provide a private communication system because it basically, and since a lot of people are helping share the content around the network, that means a lot of people can see that picture of the cat pet cat, even if that's kind of a private moment of you just sitting there hanging out with your cat 
um, that, that really the rest of the world doesn't need to see. So, so users deserve private communication. Um, the way we more or less handle that is we don't just hand the person the hash or address of where things are in data shards. We also hand, um, the key and the hash at the same time to say, here's where you get it from. And here's also, uh, Here's also how you can decrypt it or read this data that's otherwise private. So anybody we give both of those things at the same time to, they can read it. Otherwise, also other people can just help share it around the network. And the nice thing about that is that from a user perspective, they don't actually have to know about all this. They just click on a link. That's right. Because a link... That, that's, an, that's another innovation that you put into the system. Right. And it's not... We'll, we'll get to where it came from. It's not a completely new thing, but it... We are making a more general purpose version of this. Uh, the, 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 the really key, the key thing is, is that, yeah, that URI contains both bits of information, where to get it and how to be able to retrieve it at the same time. And, uh, this is actually, it turns out really important, even for mostly public content. Um, and that's not just because, you know, sometimes you want some of it to be private, though that's definitely true. It's also because um, being a, a node, being an operator that helps share content in the system is more dangerous if everything is in clear text. So let's figure out how this is via analogy. Let's say we have this cute little small town. In this small town, uh, the, the post office is actually run by volunteers. Uh, and people kind of at the beginning of the day step out and they hand these packages from one person to another until everybody gets their package. And like most people really approve of this service and say it's really great and consider it a valuable part of their community. But let's consider two different ways that things could be shared around in this community. Uh, one way we could wrap all of these packages and presents is just wrap everything in saran wrap, just clear transparent wrapping and now if you're now handing some stuff from one person to another you might take a peek you know for one thing and violate that person's privacy but uh making things even more complicated you might see something that you're like oh maybe this is maybe i shouldn't uh forward this and you're put in the position of a moral con quandary um and so maybe that doesn't sound so bad maybe we can help uh, community police things, but it gets a lot worse because maybe when this moves from a thing that you could do to a thing that you must do, you know, the city might pass an ordinance saying all volunteers are required to inspect everything that they hand around the network and are held liable for whatever those that content is if it's bad. Well, the volunteers are just going to drop out of that system. So in a sense, it's dramatically less bad if we just wrap things in plain old paper. You know, it's a lot, um, it's, sometimes it's safer to know less. And another system that you may have heard of is Freenet. And Freenet was created by Ian Clark in the, the late 90s. And I was a huge fan of Freenet and read uh, Ian Clark's white paper and it completely blew me away. And uh, we'll, we'll probably link to it in the show notes. You know, Freenet would be its own show, but for people who are already familiar with it, um, there are some notable differences between the the way data shards works and the way Freenet works. Um, so the the biggest I think are that we data shards works offline, and that is not a design goal that Freenet had. Freenet was designed to work online, 
and we we have both online and offline modes. One of the challenges in Freenet is that, as far as I know, that there is only the one official Freenet implementation where uh, Chris, we already have two implementations. We have Chris's original implementation and my implementation. And uh, we're, we're both working to create even more separate uh, programs that all speak data shards. And that is an important feature of our, of our system is that different languages and different programmers can work together and use this as a, as a fundamental library. And I think the last and another important feature is that Freenet had a really powerful, robust uh, routing algorithm, and it's great. We have chosen a different route, uh, a different route, haha. But uh, our our approach is that we will have separate routing layers depending on the application that we that we're building. So you can think of data shards more as a fundamental library that you can then build things on top of. So we'll have different interactions based on the application that's being developed. Yep. And so another major source of influence and and probably the biggest for me building this thing is Tahoe LEFS, which stands for the Tahoe Least Authority File System. Um, I read, uh, I, I, I took a look at this uh, uh, quite a while ago, but reading the paper really made clear a lot of things that were just it just, I think kind of like how you for Freenet, this really opened my mind as in terms of how to build this whole system. And almost everything in data shards are ideas borrowed from Tahoe LAFS. Um, but one big difference is that Tahoe currently is kind of built really for a specific cluster of nodes. So you and your friends, or maybe you and some company, all decide to set up like six servers and it'll deduplicate information between those servers and the servers don't know what the content is and stuff like that. But you, you can't just extend it out to like an infinite number of servers out of the box. Um, whereas what we really wanted was to build data shards as kind of new primitives for the web. Like the same way that HTTP is an, an essential like live connection primitive and same thing with WebSockets. We believe that we really need something for, um, secure storage. So that's probably the biggest difference. And like I said, the read, I, I highly encourage those who are more technically minded in the audience to read the Tahoe papers because they're, they're really, really great. And we should also say again that users of these systems or of data shards, at least, won't necessarily need to understand all these complicated things. It, it should part of the, the beauty here, the thing that I really think you've brought to the table is making something that looks and feels just like a URI, uh, you know, something that you can send, hey, click on this link and get this data. And that that's really innovative and powerful. And uh, from an implementer standpoint, from my standpoint, uh, the interface that I've tried to create for my libraries are that it you just have a, a send and receive, mm -hmm. right? You as a as even as a programmer shouldn't have to be thinking too hard about what's going on under the covers. It should just work for you. But that does get to some of our really cool features, and I and I mentioned this a little bit when I talked about Freenet. But we we can work offline just as easily as we can work online, and so you could have a bunch of data shards stuff on a USB key, and so. If you have really private information, maybe you never want it to go on the actual internet. Maybe you just want to hand it to somebody. And the beauty here is that I could hand 
information. I could hand a USB key to Chris and Chris could hand it to Susan and I could hand Susan not the information, but just uh, the URI. And as long as she gets the USB key from Chris, she'll be able to retrieve that data. And Chris won't be able to read what's on that USB key. That's right. And and the, the other cool part is that it, it doesn't have to be specifically encrypted to Susan, right? Unlike some other systems that maybe some of our listeners are familiar with, like PGP, uh, Susan could also share that with other people. So what, what we're saying is that it's kind of end-to-end encrypted and the intermediaries don't have access to what the actual content is. Unless, of course, Susan chooses to then share the, the full URI with the key with, um, with Chris. And of course, if she does that, then Chris will be able to read it too. But Chris will be able to hold on to it and not know what's on there. Right. Even if Chris was a bad actor and tried to tamper with it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. What it would show is that it, that, that the files aren't there. That's right. Um, and, and like the USB key example is a really easy to follow, um, one, but we, you know, we said that we support multiple routing, uh, algorithms. Um, so we can imagine some other places that we might put things. Uh, one of them is that we could just have a specific local web end, uh, endpoint, like a backup service where I only upload it to this one specific backup service. And, and that's really all I care about. Um, you know, or we could decide to have a more global network store that, you know, there's a variety of ways that you can go about that. Uh, there are terms that can be thrown around like gossip protocols and distributed hash tables, blah, blah, blah. But we're not actually specifying which one of those it, they are because the, the fundamental structure of the system works regardless of which one you end up choosing. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that, as you say, that's an important feature of these systems uh, that, that of data shards is that we can work on an offline device like a USB key. We could work on something like Bluetooth. So you could have a Bluetooth transfer with a data shards, what we're calling a data shard store uh, on one Bluetooth device and then retrieval on another. Or we could have something uh, that's totally global, right? A shardy verse of, of information. Uh, and uh, we're looking at what algorithms we will recommend for routing on, on that kind of system to make it efficient. Right. So, uh, you know, as we said, a lot of this is that we hope to have these be more fundamental tools for web developers and web users to be able to use. Um, like we said, there's a lot of these other projects that have had similar ideas, but they, they either haven't provided privacy or they haven't provided kind of a general purpose foundation that's kind of usable, you know, for the modern web today with like a URI that you can click on that we can just use all over the place the same way we use HTTP. Yep. So Chris, let's talk about some of the limitations of data shards because a lot of, a lot of project leaders, they'll only talk about how great their technology is and they don't necessarily want to talk about um, some of the places that it may not be as strong or, or concerns about it. And I think the biggest one that we've received about data shards is that we are using cryptography and because we're using cryptography, all cryptography has kind of a shelf life, which is just that with, with, as computers become more and more powerful, it is possible to use 
brute force and smart algorithms to decrypt data eventually. Right. And weaknesses are sometimes found as well. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean by smart algorithms, right? Pe- people will look and they'll say, hey, I can, I can break your encryption algorithm. And that is a concern. And the, the first answer I would say is that, that while that's true, the alternative that we have right now is clear text and clear text isn't good. That's right. So, so, you know, something is better than nothing. And my, and I think the second approach that I would say is that if you're really concerned about this data, you can still use data shards offline and that would be a totally legitimate thing to do. So, um, and I guess, and I guess a third response would be, you can use additional cryptography on top of data shards. There's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from layering on your own cryptographic algorithm on top of the built-in stuff that data shards provides. Yep. So another criticism is about the mutable stuff. Um, as we said, um, we don't really throw away old revisions, uh, necessarily in the sense that once somebody has a revision, it's their decision, uh, effectively about whether or not they keep it. I mean, unless if they, you know, voluntarily get rid of something and you could ask them nicely or there's some sort of other social pressure, including coercion, I mean, or you could just confine them, you know, just put them in jail, right? Uh, and that's that's a major source of concern if you, you know, have some sort of version of things that you're like, ah, oh, this is in the past. I really, I don't want to see this specific version. And that, like, that has its pluses and minuses, right? Like, I recently saw an archive of of like a bunch of deleted tweets from the current US president and I thought it was good for democracy that people were able to keep those those posts um but you know there there may be other things that are more personal that people don't want to you know stick around forever there's never a system in which you can force someone to delete and not have it be run by essentially a dictator right so if i send you an email that has some personal information, maybe a, a you know a love letter that I wrote when, when I was a teenager. I can ask you to to delete it, but I can't actually force you to delete it. And uh, I think people who've who've mistakenly sent emails know that that's the case, or maybe they send a text to someone and they didn't mean to, right? There's no system that can actually force someone else to delete data. And so what we're saying is that we're no worse than anyone else. Right. And in fact, even uh, like Microsoft's uh, Outlook stuff added the like delete flag at some point, and it kind of tripped up users because they thought they could send things and then take them back, but they really couldn't, right? Somebody on the other end who wasn't running a client that cooperatively did that, they could still see the thing. Right. So you, w- what you're saying is we can ask other servers to, to, or clients to delete data, but we can't actually force them. We can't put a gun to their head. That's right. And force that to happen. Well, we could, so, but that's an out-of-band system to use a gun. That's right. That's right. Uh, we, we, and, and I don't think that that's, that's in line with our values. Right. So conflicts could also be a problem. Uh, so for example, we could think about, uh, let's say our friends uh, Alyssa and Ben are playing this RPG. Um, you know, they decide it would be really fun to use data shards and that they'd like to be able to save her character sheet in a way that they could both, you know fetch the updates using a mutable data a mutable data shards object and so you know so the first thing that could happen would be it could be an accidental conflict right so 
So the other thing that you've, you've brought up to me is that conflicts are also possible and, and they're an issue that we, we can't solve at this layer. And we'll talk about how we, we do address that a little bit. And that's basically this problem. You can imagine that the way we handle versions is that we just number the versions. So version one, version two, version three, just like we might save um, a document on the desktop and we would say, oh, this is version five and version six. Well, that's, that's pretty much how mutable data shards works. Now, what happens when you have one version that you've maybe saved from the desktop, that's version six, and then another one from the phone? And you can, you can look at those two and say, well, which one is the right one? And I, and I know this is this little strange analogy because people might say, well, it's the, it's the, it's the last one by time. But remember, we're only looking at these, at these numbers. And they, the two, the two devices might not have synced yet. Right. So, so, and, and, and that's how the conflict arose was because the phone version didn't have the desktop version. So now, uh, a third device sees you know, gets gets the update from both the desktop and the phone and says, "Well, I've got two version sixes. I don't know which is the right version six. And what mutable data shards does is it says, in that scenario, we are not going to make the choice for you on how you want to handle that. What we, what we can do instead is we can say, well, here are some suggestions." on different approaches that you might want to use, but we don't lock the developer into any specific choice. That's right. Um, and we could mitigate this a little by adding a, a registry so that if we've got the phone and the desktop, normally when you'd push out these updates to the world, you'd want anybody that sees them to know about conflicts. But we could decide that both the desktop and the phone communicate with a server to synchronize. And if that server has seen a version 3 already from the desktop and a version 3 tries to be pushed from the phone, it can just reject it. So that user could have a chance to fix it locally before they push it out to the broader system. But that's like you have to set up that specific thing to be able to deal with that problem. And that's only if it's cooperative, right? Like a cooperative conflict. And that's not the only kind of co conflict that there could be. And what you just described was an accidental conflict. Um, and we can also imagine a malicious conflict, right? Like maybe instead of it being one person who's updating from two devices, maybe it's one person who's intentionally telling different people different things. So you might, I, I certainly knew that the kid on the playground in, you know, elementary school who, you know, kind of picked on, uh, kids who were lonely and they were, came up to them and would be like, Hey, you know, uh, if you give me $5, it says to one kid on the one side of the playground, I'll be your best friend, right? And the kid's like, sure, you know, I'm lonely, you know, here's $5. And, and, and that kid, the, the bully like marks down, Hey, take a look. I updated my best friend file. You're the only best friend there. And, and that kid's like, great, right? And then the other, the bully walks to the other end of the playground and says, Hey, to, uh, um, another kind of lonely kid. Hey, if you, uh, let me copy your homework. I'll be your best friend. And and that kid says, sure, you know, why not? And so, um, and then he makes an update over there, right? But eventually the two sides of the playground may talk to each other. It could be the next hour, the next day, or the next week. And then both kids will realize that, oh, they, they kind of got screwed. And like, and similarly, our own systems might not know how to handle a problem 
when if somebody maliciously intentionally tries to introduce some sort of conflict. Right. And as as we said, we we are going to provide approaches that you can take maybe and hopefully in the future we'll have code to go along with that. So we'll be able to say, hey, here's an approach that you could take to mitigate this. But we're not going to to out of the box force users into any one particular approach because we're trying to create fundamentals here that people can then build on top of just in the same way that we're not building internet connectivity as a requirement or a specific routing algorithm or a specific programming language. These, the idea here is that these are primitives for developers to build new applications on. Just to clarify why we're not specifying one, because you might think, well, it really, this sounds like it's really broken. We really ought to specify the way to deal with this conflict. Well, first of all, like the other things, this, these kind of conflicts exist in all sorts of distributed systems already. ActivityPub also has this kind of problem, you know, that you could have somebody tell one thing to one person and one thing to another and not, not tell them both something, right? Um, and there's limits to what we can do. Um, one, a couple of directions that we can explain that you could think about doing this is like, we could take a highly centralized approach, right? So maybe if somebody's updating the equivalent of their state ID, we could say, well, the state has something like the social security, you know, office, or it has something like the, you know, the DM, the driver's, um, department of motor vehicles or something like that. And that place specifically handles deciding what's the newest identifier. But of course, we're interested in decentralized systems. So maybe people will be like, I don't feel so great about that. Well, another option you could take, and and I'm sure some people have been thinking it, is we could put all this stuff on a blockchain. And a, and we absolutely could. A blockchain is one way to have a distributed system that specific, specifies specific updates in a series. Um, but it adds a lot of extra costs. Like, if we were making, if we were using mutable data shards and we were making some game with like a bunch of little like goblin characters in it, and you were, you know, these goblin characters came and went like nuts, we would just bloat that system really fast. And it, it would have kind of all the costs that, that a blockchain normally has. So we don't want to select a specific one, although you could layer either of those choices uh, on top of this. Yeah. Blockchains are one of those technologies that it's kind of sold as a magic cure, but but actually they have, when Chris says cost, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of extra computing power, a, a lot of work and storage that's required to make that all happen, which is completely unnecessary for most applications. And so, again, as Chris said, we could layer that on top, but it's unnecessary as a fundamental primitive. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about about what this is, and we've talked a lot about the limitations, but what really excites me is what are the ways that this thing can be used in real life? And the first one that, that really excited me was you, your example of, of Golem is basically, hey, we can use this on the Fediverse today, and if we did, then we wouldn't have to worry about um, nodes going down, right? So if an, an instance goes down and you gave, uh, I think it was witches.town was a famous, is a famous example of an activity pub server that went away. And if they had been using data shards, that content would still be around. Yep. And 
The content is one thing and another big concern that people have. Uh, I didn't put it in Golem, though I've thought about doing a follow-up is, um, and this is probably the biggest complaint on the Fediverse, is witches.town's content going down was bad enough. But having the users become disconnected from their identity was what really hurt people, right? You know, now they've built up all these followers, they've they've done all those types of things, and now they can't, like, people have to find them again. You know, somebody malicious could pretend to be them when people are trying to find them again. All sorts of things like that, and that's not great. So if you instead thought about using mutable data shards, um, you know, ActivityPub basically has a user's profile that says, here's my name, here's my bio, here's how you can... You know, here's where my inbox is that you send me messages. And that user, if they held on to the ability to write new versions to a mutable data shard, they could say, okay, I'm updating the MDSC to point over to this other server. So now that update just needs to be kind of spread around the network and people can continue talking to that person. Right. And in addition to that, the feature of data shards that I really think is interesting is that it will also allow for kind of uh, posts that may not you may not want everyone in the world to see. So if you're used to Facebook or LiveJournal or any of those type of systems, you might say, well, this is a friends-only post. And you can't really do that without the encryption layer that we've that we've added into data shards. And and specific, especially not in a way where the content survives, right? Right. You kind of, you've you had to choose between content surviving and centralized control. But with this system, you get the benefits of that control without losing the distributed part, which is so amazing to me. So there's another interesting example. And let me tie this into Sprightly, because this is why I got interested in all this type of stuff is, you know, we could use this type of stuff for games as well, like maybe game assets, like you want to be able to distribute around you know, these different 3D models or these different images and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. You know, there's no reason we can't do that. And and I'll, I think we kind of already went into how that works with user profiles, but there's a nice write-up in the Crystal write-up. Um, and I need to step back for a moment and say that Data Shards used to be called Sprightly Megank and Sprightly Crystal, but we've changed those names to just to Data Shards. Um, we, there's a write up in the, in the crystal documentation, which shows it as a couple of people playing a tabletop RPG and discovering all the challenges that, you know, and all the opportunities that involve, you know, being able to do these updates and being able to, um, you know, distribute this around. Yep. I think the other example that comes to mind for me that's really exciting is a global media store. And there are so many examples of projects that are huge. Um, archive.org is an example of a giant project, but there's also software archives, right? So Debian uh, archives, for example, are, are just gigantic. And this is an, this, this data shards is a way to distribute that to lots of servers and not have to go through the complexity of mirroring, et cetera. That, you know, maybe from those of us in the 90s remember going to, you know, FTP mirrors and HTTP mirrors to download software. Well, um, we we don't need to do that here. It, it just kind of works. And uh, it, it's, it's a lot like using a CDN, but without having to have that formal CDN structure. 
That's right. And um, by having the CDN-like thing, uh, it's possible to do what we said earlier, which is, you know, have people be able to help content creators spread things around the internet. Um, and it also means that if, you know, the, the next version of GeoCities that goes down, people who care about that content can keep it around. Yeah. So another exciting application is cooperative storage, and that can be used for, for backups or private backups, and, and we'll kind of talk about that. So at home, I have a giant media storage device. It holds about 10 terabytes, and I don't use most of that storage. And I would be happy to kind of lend that storage out to, to a friend like Chris. So if Chris wanted to store their backups on my machine, I would be happy if it, to, to allow them to do that. But it's really complicated to set that up between our two systems right now without, without data shards. So with data shards, Chris could do their backups and do those backups to my machine. And I still wouldn't be able to look at Chris's data. And that's really powerful. And, and then on top of that, if Chris did want to share some data with me, then they could share the specific shards that are related to the thing that they want to show me. So maybe Chris has a, a cat picture within their backups and they're like, Oh, actually, I do want to show you that. And I can retrieve that cat picture from my local machine that has Chris's backups. That's right. And what's, what's really nice about the example you just used is it also demonstrates why it's really valuable that we did not make a decision about whether or not data shards is a global system or a local system. In fact, right here, we had a network connection of me doing a backup to you, somebody I trust a lot more without wanting to give you full access. But it, the assumption is not that I'm distributing this around the whole internet, which might make me feel a bit safer if I consider the kind of uh, the chances of uh, somebody being able to mount an attack on content that I uploaded at the at, at the future. It's still encrypted at rest, but um, I chose to put this in a specific place as opposed to just out on the global internet. Yeah, exactly. So y you can choose the network topology that makes sense for you and your application. And that's that's, again, why these are primitives and not a full application. We'll be building applications based on this. So we've given a couple of examples. We haven't written a lot of the software yet to, to do, for example, the private backups, but that's coming. And uh, I know I'm going to be really excited and working on some of this stuff uh, going forward. And I'm excited to write these applications because this is where we get to really use it and test it and, and hopefully inspire someone else to make something really interesting that we hadn't even thought of. Right. So where are we going from here? Um, by the time this episode is up, we will have a website. It'll be datashards.net. And that will, of course, be linked in the show notes. Uh, Chris is going to be speaking on data shards at Rebooting Web of Trust. We are hopefully going to be going for some kind of standardization. But uh, I think that that will also depend on what the reception is at Rebooting Web of Trust and seeing if there are other organizations or people that want to work with us to kind of converge on something. So, so maybe some of the details will change uh, in the implementation, but, but I think the core ideas are not going to. So if you're interested and you want to contribute, I think the first thing would be to go to datashards.net and look at uh, Chris's implementation uh, and my implementation. So if you want to write your own, that would be awesome. 
And maybe if you've got an idea for an application and you want to actually write that application and you just need some help with the libraries, come and talk to us. Uh, I think we're going to be on IRC at hash data shards on Freenode and where you can kind of talk and chat about, about data shards. So yeah, that, I think that's it for data shards. I mean, things may change going forward, but the core, the core concepts are there. The Chris's racket implementation and my Python implementation, uh, are there. I don't actually remember what your implementation's called. I think it's still called Magank, but I, I know, Chris, you're going to change that soon. Yeah, they're, they're, it's currently called Magank and Sprightly Crystal still. I'm planning on having them uh, converge on uh, Racket-DataShards. And and mine is PyDataShards, and uh, I've currently got a version up, uh, and we'll, we'll link to it on uh, datashards.net, and I'm working on an async version um, that hopefully will be in the next few weeks. So uh, with with those two tools, uh, well, one of those two tools, you'll be able to write your application, and it'll be a really exciting time for, for this project. So I think it's time to wrap up this episode. So we, we have hash data shards on Freenode. We also have uh, hash Libra Lounge on Freenode where you can come and chat with us. We're also on the, the Fediverse at, uh, at Libra Lounge at floss.social. Of course, we have our website, LibraLounge.org. Am I missing anything, Chris? Um, only that uh, data. Oh, right. We're on Twitter. Right? We're, we're also Libra Lounge on Twitter. Yeah. And, and data shards grew out of the Sprightly project. So you might want to join hash Sprightly as well. If you want to add three channels to your IRC ro- roster. Yeah. Three, three channels that we're both on. Um, if, if, if you can't get enough of us. So yeah, so this is really exciting. Um, I'm really glad that we're, we have this chance to talk about this exciting project that I have been really lucky to been introduced to and be able to work on with you, Chris. This has been an amazing summer. This is the summer of 2019, and we have been working on so much really cool stuff that I, I can't wait to, to keep going and to talk about it. And uh, it looks like APConf is sold out, but uh, we'll definitely be doing uh, a recap of, of, the, uh, of the conference when we get back. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, there's so much going on. It's just awesome. Sold out, as in it took $0 to register. But yes, we're booked up. Well, booked up. All right, sold out. But hey, that's that's uh, it's still a sale. It's a it's an easy sale. That's right. Uh, especially for for zero dollars for an amazing conference, all about Activity Pub. I, I can't think of anything better. All right, we got a lot right. of work to do, and I'm exhausted. Let's get off this episode. All right, <laughs> see you all next time. Bye bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at librelounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joth, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.